Good morning. Today's reading is found on page 985, and it's Matthew um, chapter 18, um, 15 to 22. Pages 985, Matthew um, chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for it, it will be done you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And just let me read the next couple of verses. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. We're thinking this morning about forgiveness. And uh, I think what we're looking at, what Jesus says, is we're going to find it uh, quite uh, penetrating, quite profound, and quite practical. Because what happens in close relationships, in a family, in a marriage, in a community at work, in church, what happens in close relationships when something goes wrong? There's an argument. Um, tempers flare. A relational explosion happens. How do we cope with that? What do we do next? How, what, I think one of the things we do, one of the ways we cope, is once the dust, dust settles, there's an instinct that says, whoa, we do not want to go there again. So we'll build a fence around it, or a wall, if uh, you prefer. And we build a fence around that area of life. And, oh gosh, let's not talk about that again. Let's not go there again. Maybe let's not talk to that person again. And it seems like a solution. It kind of works short term. But long term, in a relationship of any kind, it means there's a, there's a thing. There's, there's, oh, there's something. There's, oh, we mustn't go there. There's a thing, an elephant in the room, an exhausting awkwardness that drains life from the relationships that should give us life. I'm going to hazard a guess that in a church family like this where some people have been members of the church family for 40-odd years, then possibly, perhaps, maybe, there might have been once or twice where that has happened over the last 40 years. There's bound to be some of that kind of history in every church, in every community, in every family, possibly. And what Jesus teaches here is a wonderful and powerful alternative Something that frees us from that exhausting awkwardness 
something that frees us to love again. The vision he explains here for his church is twofold. It's a community where sin is brought out into the light and a community where forgiveness flows freely. Forgiveness being normal and natural because we know how much God has forgiven us. So let's think about the first of those. A community where sin is brought out into the light. It's not swept under the carpet. It's not fenced around. It's brought out into the light and dealt with. Imagine, says Jesus, that you have a brother. Okay, not difficult for some of us. We do have brothers, sisters. But imagine this brother... um, he does something wrong, and not just does something wrong out there, he does something wrong against you. He really hurts you, really damages you in some way. Maybe it damages your reputation. I think all of us growing up with brothers and sisters know this, where the other one's done it, and, and somehow they manage to persuade your parents that you were at fault. They ruin your reputation, they say untrue things about you, and that can get bigger in the workplace. Or someone who, who upsets you or, or just has really unjustified anger against you. And you think, whoa, where did that come from? Or someone who hurts you physically in some way because of clumsiness, because of carelessness, not paying attention, or even something deliberate. Someone who hurts you financially, a missed opportunity, the cost of putting things right. What do you do next? Well, in our world, you could try and get your own back. People have always tried that, haven't they? A bit of reciprocity, a bit of feuding, a bit of revenge. There's always gossip, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, tell everybody what he or she did to me. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good... It makes us feel better. Or, or, or how about an angry email or a starting a Twitter storm? Or, verse 15, you could go to your brother and show him his fault just between the two of you. Can you see how different that is? Can you see it's, it's a proportionate response? Instead of escalating, it's designed to win over the person. It's only in verse 16 Jesus says, if, if he doesn't listen, that you might involve one or two other people. But first and foremost, it's about trying to be reconciled. It, it's only after you've tried and you've brought others and then if after repeated attempts he's having none of it then it might be the point that he needs the whole church to hear what's happened and he needs the whole church to call on him to repent I don't know what you make of that Jesus I don't think is giving us an exact blueprint for church life but he is definitely giving us principles and I wonder whether you can see the wisdom of that those principles whether it is for church or for marriage or for family for parenting, for the workplace. It's a proportionate response. When something's gone wrong, you go directly to the person and you try to resolve things. It only involves other people if it doesn't work, that first effort. And note that reconciliation starts with you and me when we've been wronged against. Actually, we make the first move to say, you shouldn't have done that and give the person an opportunity to apologize. And in the case of church, there is this last resort possibility of censoring someone who refuses to repent. He calls himself a Christian, but he's someone who never apologizes, even when he's done really wrong things. 
And uh, when that happens, Jesus says, well, you know, we're still going to love you, but we're going to treat you like someone, you call yourself a Christian, but we're going to treat you like someone who hasn't really got it yet. You've not really understood the message of forgiveness if you're not living it. As I say, that's a last resort. We've never quite done that in this church family. But if someone were acting in a way, repeatedly, which was hurting others, then we would definitely speak to that person. Uh, when he was alive, one of our neighbours, an alcoholic, used to come to church drunk and rowdy. Um, and we were as patient as we could be with him, but when he started to scare some of the children by sort of lurching and blurting out and whatever else have you, we had to say to him, listen, can you just come to something midweek where there are adults present but not children? Those are extreme examples. Um, this is actually just about everyday life, though, isn't it? The need for forgiveness, the need for stuff to be dealt with. It's saying in, in family, in workplace, in church, things should come out into the open. Church should be a community where sin is not left to fester, but brought out and dealt with. John Major, former British Prime Minister, said he never apologised and wore it as a badge of honour. Apparently another fan of that philosophy is a certain Mr. Trump. But what happens when sin is not acknowledged? When no one ever says sorry? When it's just denied and swept under the carpet? What kind of community results? Well, not one when there's a lot of trust, is there? A community where there's, there's hurts are never resolved that fester, that become bitterness. A community where there's feuding, maybe reciprocity and revenge. We get it back on each other we, or, or we just cut each other off and we ignore each other. And memories are never let to lie. If we're going to be a different kind of community, as Jesus teaches here, it's essential that we take on board the other side of what he says. As well as a community where sin is brought out into the light, we're to be a community where forgiveness flows freely where it's just normal and natural to forgive because we know how much we've been forgiven by God. And if you look down to verse 21, Peter is starting to get the idea where he says, that's why I read that extra bit, he, he, he says, oh, okay, um, should I forgive up to seven times? And what Jesus says in reply is staggering, not only for Peter, but I think for you and me. I tell you, not sometimes, but 77, or possibly if you look down at the translator's footnote, seven times 70, which doesn't mean, right, okay, you've done it 69 times now, that means you've got eight chances left. Jesus is amplifying the number. He's saying, forgive so many times that actually you won't be able to keep count. Forgive and keep on forgiving. Think of the Lord's Prayer that we prayed a minute ago. Uh, look at it on the sheets if you need to. Uh, what does Jesus say to pray directly after praying for our daily bread? Forgive us our sins or trespasses and old money as we forgive those who sin against us. Daily we pray for bread. Daily we pray to receive forgiveness and to pass it on because that's what we need. We need to receive it from God and then pass it on to others so we become a community where forgiveness freely flows. To underline how essential that is, Jesus then tells a very hard-hitting parable about someone who's more than happy to receive forgiveness but refuses to pass it on. Um, and just a quick summary is, it's, is of a servant with a massive debt to a king. 
who is forgiven the debt by the king, forgiven this enormous amount of money, and then a fellow servant owes him a hundred quid or so, and he refuses to forgive that fellow servant and sort of takes it out on him. And the king takes a very dim view of it, and if you've got the Bibles handy on on verse uh, 35 of Matthew 18, Jesus ends his parable with a warning. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. It's a difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. You don't have to have visited uh, Israel to uh, know that, a bit about that, but um, let me sort of say what I mean by that analogy. Uh, one of them, Sea of Galilee, is full of life. The other, as the name suggests, isn't. Uh, it's, it's dead of life, if you don't count the sort of tourists floating on the edge trying to have their photo taken. Um, and, and the difference between those two seas, those two inland seas, is that one, the Sea of Galilee, receives water in and water flows out of it. There's a throughput and there's life there. It's full of life. The other, the Dead Sea, receives water in but has no outlet. And so it gets saltier and saltier and nothing can live there. And that is how spiritual reality works when it comes to forgiveness for you and for me. If it's freely flowing... We'll be alive to God. Our church community will just be a fantastic place to be part of because we'll be receiving God's gift of forgiveness. We'll be passing it on. It'll be a life-giving place to be if we're living this. And in that context, we won't be afraid when sin comes out into the light because we know it can be dealt with by God and in our community. It means we can welcome in people with all kinds of problems because actually this is a life-giving community and that's what Jesus wants for us. I guess the simplest example of this is in a family where children learn to say sorry because they, they're going to do things wrong. Oscar, darling that he looks today in his lovely outfit, might possibly perhaps do some things wrong in his life. He's going to need to learn to say sorry, isn't he? But he's also going to need to learn that he can have confidence to do that because his parents will forgive him. And actually, the two go together. And that's what it's going to be like if we're alive spiritually as a church family. We need to receive forgiveness and pass it on. Otherwise, we will be like the Dead Sea. And that's why Jesus warns so sternly. So it's a warning, Jesus gives it. We need to hear it. But how will we change to become, what, how will our hearts change? You need the warning, but what about things that will transform my heart to make me a person of forgiveness? What are things that will transform our hearts to make us a community of forgiveness? Above all, it's got to be that we're aware of what God has done for us. Like the king in Jesus' story, how much debt we've been forgiven. God's love and forgiveness flowing into our lives. And then allowing that to not only soak in, but to change our hearts so we pass it on. So can I say, if you find it hard to forgive others, and sometimes it is very hard, can you, perhaps as an application of this sermon, will you spend time considering how much God has forgiven you? 
Every day, you've been alive, I've been alive, we've done things which the Bible calls sin. We talked about it in the confession time. There have been hundreds now, thousands, millions eventually, of thoughts, words, and deeds, to take that phrase from the confession, where, where we've gone against God's purposes. We've not loved him. We, all those times, we've just, we just ignored him and gone our own way. And it's a massive moral debt, as it were. And then we hear the news about Jesus. We hear that he came into the world, that he died on a cross, that he paid for every single one of those sins. Every single one. We hear that amazing news and we put our faith in him and we say, thank you, Jesus. Please do that for me. And that opens the gate, the door, through which forgiveness flows into our lives from God. And we're made clean. We're like the servant with the mountainous debt, the billions owed, all cleared by Jesus. And when I realize that, when you realize that, when it soaks into our souls, it will change us to be able to forgive others and to pass it on. So at the time of uh, Martin McGuinness's funeral um, a couple of weeks ago, I was reminded of the Enniskillen bombings, um, bombing, sorry, singular, on Remembrance Day, 1987. And some might remember it, the words of Gordon Wilson, whose daughter Marie was killed in the bombing right next to him. He told the BBC that he forgave her killers and added... I shall pray for those people tonight and every night. What a remarkable man. Uh, His quiet dignity had a profound effect on many in in Northern Ireland. He was later involved in initiatives to improve community relations in Inneskillen and eventually was appointed to the Senate in the Republic of Ireland. Now, you may find that inspiring. You may find that utterly intimidating and strange. But you see, the reason Gordon Wilson said that, I don't know what he felt as he said that, probably a huge array of things, but he got something profound about the Christian faith. He got that the heart of it is forgiveness from God that we pass on. He followed the example of the Prince of Priests who, when they crucified him, practiced what he preached when he prayed, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they do. They don't know what they're doing. So you see, forgiveness flows freely, as it did for uh, Gordon Wilson, when we realize how much we've been forgiven. So it may be that some of us today, in response to this sermon, just need to take time out, maybe at home when it's just a bit quieter, or just take a few moments before uh, having a cup of tea or coffee at the end, just to come to God. Uh, You've thought maybe of someone who it's really difficult for you to forgive because of what they've done. So ask ask for God's help. Ask that God will work in you, change your heart. Help you to just absorb how much he's done for you and then to be able to pass it on. Perhaps forgiveness starts not as a feeling at all, but just as a sheer decision when you're praying the Lord's Prayer. I will forgive them because you say so, Lord Jesus. 
please help me to do it because I find it enormously hard. You see, it's as we pray, as we sing of God's goodness, we sing of what he's done, as we read of it in the Bible, especially when we come to a communion table and break bread and share wine, in remembrance of Jesus' death, that we meditate, we absorb how much we've been forgiven. It soaks into our souls, it changes our hearts so that it flows freely from us. There are loads of questions there, I know. Loads more I'd love to talk about um, over, uh, over a couple later or another time. But can you see, if forgiveness is the heart of the Christian faith, the forgiveness of our sins, Jesus paying the debt we all owe, then it follows naturally from that, that Jesus' vision of families, of workplaces, but especially of churches, of this church, is a community where sin is brought out into the light so it can be dealt with. And that we've got the confidence to do that because it's a community where forgiveness freely flows. It's normal and natural because we know how much God has forgiven us. Let's just have a moment or two for personal prayer and reflection, just being able to, in the silence of our own minds, frame a prayer to God, talk to him, make a mental note of something that you need to come back to. So let's have that moment set for pause with the quiet.